Hello, welcome to the Lit English English Lit podcast. Today, I'm going to be providing some analysis of Hamlet Act Three, Scene One, one of the most pivotal scenes in the play. It contains some of the most iconic moments in the play. In fact, all of Act Three, Act Two was just two scenes. Act Three is only four scenes, and they are all very intense. Lots happens.、Um, usually, somewhere early in Act Three, there's a kind of a turning point in the play or an important plot moment. Hamlet is no exception. We're going to look at more dynamics in、uh, among the royal court. So Claudius questioning Rosencrantz and Guildenstern,、um, setting up a kind of a, a, a sting, a, a trap, I suppose, for Hamlet with Polonius.、Um, we get a short but extraordinary moment with Claudius and the side that he makes. We're going to get Hamlet's "to be or not to be" speech, that very famous、um, soliloquy. And of course, we have the confrontation between Ophelia and Hamlet, which results in him telling her multiple times, "Get thee to a nunnery." So, and then the fallout of that, Claudius's plan to send Hamlet to England, and then, as always, some final thoughts and connections. If you're following along on the BBC David Tennant、um, movie, you're going to want to start at one hour twenty-six minutes twenty-three seconds. Once you get to one hour twenty-seven minutes eighteen seconds, you're then actually going to want to stop and go back to fifty-six minutes forty-four seconds because remember they include the "to be or not to be" speech and the Ophelia confrontation earlier.、So、you've got to go back to fifty-six forty-four. That will take you through to one hour and five minutes. Stop there and then skip forward to one hour twenty-seven minutes nineteen seconds through to the end of the scene, which is about a minute later. I'm excited that you're with me.、Uh, I hope you have your books ready. I hope you've read the scene. I hope you're ready to learn. And as always, I'm thrilled that you're with me. So stay with me. Well, Act Three, Scene One takes place very soon, almost immediately, I suppose, after Act Two, Scene Two. So. While there's a fairly big time gap of of at least a couple of weeks between Act One and Act Two, between Act Two and Act Three, barely any time at all has passed.、Um, the king is kind of、uh, still fishing for information from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and and based on what we understand, based on what happens later on in the play, it's probably at this stage that the king begins to suspect that Hamlet might be onto him. What I find significant about the Interaction between Claudius and Gertrude and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is that both Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have a slightly skewed perspective of how their conversation went down. So, if you remember back to their conversation, Hamlet essentially didn't really give them much information. He he managed to get information out of them, right? Why they were sent for, and the only real conversation they had was about these. The actors that are coming up, that are that are showing up. So nothing useful is gained. Rosencrantz confirms that they didn't really understand anything Hamlet said, and that he quote with a crafty madness keeps aloof, which seems to me kind of just confirmation bias. Guildenstern, on the other hand, either lies or can't really remember properly, saying lines fifteen to sixteen that Hamlet is niggard of question, meaning he didn't ask many questions. Actually, I went back and counted. Hamlet asked twenty-three questions, 
And then he goes on to say, but of our demands, most free in his reply. In other words, he was very happy to answer our questions. Well, of course, we know that's not true because Hamlet gave them very little useful information. But as, as Claudius and Polonius kind of set up this, this spying situation, right? The plan is to set up Gertrude, so set up Ophelia. And when Hamlet comes to have Ophelia interact with him in such a way that will get Hamlet to react and thus confirm Polonius's theory that Hamlet is mad. So, of course, we've got more surveillance, more spying, um, you know, references. What I find interesting is that Gertrude is not invited. Okay, um, the king says, sweet Gertrude, leave us too, line 30. So she's not considered part of this, which gives us indication of where she fits in the in the pecking order. Claudius and Polonius see themselves as lawful spies, line 35, right? They, he says, lawful espials. I don't know if they're trying to kind of justify what they're doing. And, if there's, you know, we have legal precedents for doing this. But either way, it, it sounds a little bit, um, sounds interesting. And then what I what is also really funny is that the queen then says, I shall obey you like a, like a good woman, line 40. And then she says, and for your part, Ophelia... I'm thinking, wait, Ophelia's on stage? Who knew? She hasn't said anything so far. They've been talking about what she's going to do, but no one's said anything. No one's asked her any questions. No one asks, has asked her how she's felt about it. And the only thing she says is, Madam, I wish it may. And then the queen leaves. Polonius kind of orders her around. And basically, Polonius has ordered her to basically be bait for Hamlet, right? Your job is to stand there to give Hamlet back his letters and hopefully get him to demonstrate his behavior. I do want to go back to this moment in Act 2, Scene 2, where Hamlet calls Polonius Jephthah. J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. He talks about Jephthah and his daughter and Polonius says, oh, so he's still talking about my daughter. Did you hear that? And Jephthah is an interesting man. In, the, in He's a character in the Old Testament who had a problem. And I can't exactly remember what it was. I should have looked it up before this podcast. But basically, he said to God, he made a deal with God. If, if you help me out here, I will sacrifice the first thing that I see to you when I get home. And... The very first thing he sees when he returns home is his daughter who runs out to meet him. So he's required to sacrifice her. So when Hamlet calls Polonius Jephthah, he is alluding to the fact that Polonius is not using his daughter well. And it is foreshadowing what Polonius is going to do right here, which is essentially putting Gertrude, sorry, Ophelia out there as as bait. Okay, and, and this interaction with Hamlet really damages Ophelia. It's a very distressing moment for Ophelia. And actually, even Polonius himself admits that this staged interaction is, is not healthy. Um, he gives Ophelia a book on line 50. It's usually supposed to be the Bible. And, and he says, you know, um, with devotion's visage and pious action, we do sugar over the devil himself. Um, in other words, sometimes when we want to be, we want to look pious, it's actually because we are covering up our, um, you know, our dark, hidden, you know, things inside us. Well, that comment is what 
triggers Claudius. And so we're going to hear about that in just a second. Well, this section is going to deal with this aside, this comment that only is meant for certain people that Claudius gives in response to Polonius's comments about sugaring over the devil, right? So as Polonius, who gives Gertrude probably a Bible to pretend to be reading, says, wow, you know, we do this a lot, right? We, we cover up our deep, you know, the evil inside us with this show of piety. And Claudius responds almost viscerally to this. And in an aside that's only supposed to be heard by the audience, he says this, line 56, Oh, tis too true, how smart a lash that speech doth give my conscience. In other words, wow, that, that cut me. The harlot's cheek beautied with a plastering art is not more ugly to the thing that helps it than is my deed to my most painted word, O oh, heavy burden. Right? The, the illusion of beauty that is created by a, a whore wearing too much makeup is no uglier than what I have done in comparison. Okay, what I have done, how I have tried to cover up my own crimes. And he calls it a heavy burden. It's a shocking, powerful, revealing statement. It's the first real insight into his mind. Everything else up until this point is, you know, we've understood that, you know, he must have some kind of facade. He must be pretending in some way. We know what he's done. But here's our first real understanding of what he really thinks an extraordinary moment. And it, it shows us how powerful guilt can be. You know, unless you're a, a sociopath, guilt is something that can really eat at you. And here we see Claudius, halfway through the play, finally admit that he is carrying this heavy burden. And ultimately, this smaller side really helps us understand his character more. It makes him much more complex. He's not just an evil villain. He is certainly the villain, the antagonist of this play, but he's complex. He's not just someone who, who does evil things without thinking about them. He feels guilty. And we're going to see this, over, this feeling overflow in Act 3, Scene 3, when he actually kneels down to ask God for forgiveness. It's a, it's a remarkable moment. And then, you know, just in terms of the context of the play, it, it confirms to us that he is yet another character who is wearing a mask and hiding something. We already knew this, of course, but this is the moment that forces us to reconsider everything that he said, seeing it as fake, seeing it as a facade, as, as a front of some kind. It's an amazing moment. And, and when we get the opportunity to understand how a villain or an antagonist has a human side, it gives a depth and nuance and complexity to the, to the play or the piece of literature that was not present up until that point. So it's a very important moment. So we're going to start a new section on the podcast. We're going to call it the top five. And each time we'll count down our top five favorite something. So today we're going to be counting down our top five favorite snacks, savory or sweet. 
So today I have with me Rosie, who's 13, there's me of indeterminate age, there is Milo, who is 8, and my wife Rachel, who is perpetually, how old? 22. 22. Okay. So, number 5. Um, my personal number 5 is barbecue um, potato chips made with avocado oil instead of canola or olive oil. Okay, very good. Uh, for my number five, it is Ben and Jerry's Americone Dream. Oh, of course, oh, it's ice cream. Sweet. Let's go. I love that. Stephen cream. Colbert's Americone Dream. All right. Uh, my favorite five gotta be like a Snickerdoodle cookie. All right, Snickerdoodle. Like okay. I also like the. Homemade gluten-free dairy-free snickerdoodles. Okay, so we got I like sn- regular snickerdoodles. made it onto the top five. Okay, number four. Um, I personally personally like apple and goat cheese with a little bit of honey in the goat's cheese. Super sweet and good at the same time. So yeah. Is that what they call chevre at Trader Joe's? Chevre. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Very. Bougie. Okay, um, my hey. number. F- <laughs> my number four is Trader Joe's Thai chili cashews. Oh, that's not. Yummo. Thai All right. chili. Um, my favorite. My um, fourth favorite is gotta be like the jalapeno nachos. Like the, like the plastic with the plastic cheese, cheese. <laughs> oh, like the little league, from the no, little league snack I bar. Play, I don't play little league. Yes, but it's from the um, the field house at soccer. Oh, okay, course, okay, yes. excellent. Okay, my number four is jalapeno cassava strips. What the heck is cassava? At home with plantain and eggplant dip that you can make at home. Okay, what is cassava? Root vegetable. Oh, yes, it's a root vegetable. Well, we now get to the part of the play that I think is most well known, most famous. The lines that you may not have seen, you've seen before, you maybe didn't know that they all came from this one soliloquy Hamlet's famous to be or not to be soliloquy. And I'd like to read it, actually, all of it in just a minute. But I would like you to notice a few things about it first. We have had, I want to say, three soliloquies of Hamlet so far. And this one is different. In this soliloquy, Hamlet is detached. There is no I or me. There's not even any mention of Ophelia or Gertrude or Claudius or his father. It's dispassionate. It lacks the usual kind of angst and and agitation, the tempo that most of his soliloquies have. And therefore, it serves as a real contrast of what is to come, of the intensity that comes later on. And it is also very philosophical and reflective. Um, it is not held up as a great example of, of kind of philosophical thought for nothing. It, it, it really is a very deep piece of thinking. And so I want to kind of add some more things to this, but I did want to read this. And hopefully, having given you that, hopefully you can see that in this particular soliloquy. 
Now, remember, he does not know that he's being observed at this point. So this is genuine. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against the sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep. To sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bared bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with a pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. So, obviously I think there, there are elements that reflect on Hamlet's, I mean, his suicidal nature, but certainly this is, is it worth it, right? Is, is it worth going on? But I think if you look at the context of the play, it also captures this sense of feeling that he's just not up to the task that he's been given. And the sheer weariness that he feels. Um, that to be or not to be, it is an existential question, but it's also to do with can he be the person he's been called to be? Is it easy to be violent or is it just better just to give up? And Hamlet is deeply mired in pondering the afterlife and whether it's even better than life itself. The afterlife and, and life and death and everything surrounding them is an important motif in this play. And this is kind of uh, one of those moments where we see that. And life is better than the afterlife, says Hamlet, but only because the afterlife is unknown, right? He calls death that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler has returned. Interestingly, he has actually met someone who's come back, right? The ghost. He seems to have forgotten about the ghost. We do have, and he has had some description of the afterlife already. And because this is very introspective, kind of reflective and philosophical, his soliloquy is actually full of general truths rather than truths that he is applying to himself. Now, of course, we can apply them to his situation, but the reason why this is such a great passage because it can be applied to you know many people in many different situations. Um, so I picked out kind of three things. He says no one would put up with the horrible parts of life if they weren't so clear about the afterlife. Um, he says we put up with uncertainty even if it involves misery, then uncertainty or an unknown future. I think that's a very true thing. And then 
this conscience makes cowards of us all, this idea that overthinking things makes us less likely to take action. Action comes when we are decisive, says Hamlet. And the more we think about things, the, more, the less likely we are to actually do them. So it is, it does stand in on its own as one of the most remarkable soliloquies in Shakespearean drama or in any drama, and, and it does so deservedly. And, you know, you've probably seen things, I, there's the rub, mortal, shuffle off this mortal coil, the whips and scorns of time, slings and arrows, um, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance, to dream. These are all phrase, phrases that are used so often in, in modern life, whether it's in pop culture, whether it's just in people's writing. Um, and so I, I hope that you were able to kind of to understand it and to, but also to get a sense of how it fits into the context of the play. <laughs> okay, we are counting down our top five favorite sweet or savory snacks, and we're at number three now. Number three. Celery and peanut butter. Flat out, straight up, yes. Okay. No <laughs> Alright, uh, number, th <laughs> number three for me is cheese and crackers. Okay, that I agree with. And so it's so my favorite is yeah. that that Trader Joe's they do that onion and chive um, cheddar cheese with the with the with the um, the olive and fig those those right, crackers yeah, yeah go that's super good for Christmas. All right. Um, uh, my three is um, donuts, probably like chocolate twist or bear claw. <laughs> <laughs> Mother's. They're so good. Okay. Anyway, Seaside well, Donuts. Seaside Donuts at um at Newport, Newport Beach. Beach. Okay. All right, my turn. Uh, I like ridged plantain chips with sea salt. Oh my god. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Number two. For me, this is kind of like a morning snack, maybe like after a workout or whatever. Um, plain goat yogurt with fruit and honey, and usually I put strawberries and blueberries and apple in it. So, good. And goat yogurt's only like $6 for a oh. carton. Oh! Okay. <laughs> All right, um, my number two are Trader Joe's honey roasted almonds. Honey sesame almonds. What is it with you and the nuts? No nuts. <laughs> I don't know, but you're nuts. Okay, All right, Milo. Um... My number two would probably be like a huge pack of nacho cheese Pringles. <laughs> like, like huge. Mom's over here regretting her okay. life decisions. Mine is homemade grain-free dairy-free banana bread with dairy-free cream I kind cheese. of agree with that. That's right really good. It's actually pretty good. I love that stuff. Really Just gonna say. I have it for breakfast like every day. But you're not supposed to because it's mom's. But I... Okay. <laughs> Well, if uh, the to be or not to be speech is quiet, introspective, what follows afterwards is explosive. And, you know, Shakespeare is showing his talent as a playwright, as someone who can, can write and develop the ebb and the flow of a scene. And 
you know, we go from this uh, questioning and, and intrigue of court to then Hamlet being very introspective to then this situation that quickly becomes explosive and really for Ophelia, highly traumatic. And Hamlet, Hamlet's response initially to seeing Ophelia is one of tenderness. He says, and this is at the end of his soliloquy, he says, soft you now, the fair Ophelia, beautiful Ophelia. It suggests, that term fair suggests admiration and respect, tenderness. Um, he probably hasn't seen her in a while. If Ophelia has been banned from seeing him, I mean, maybe she's been sneaking around, but it's entirely probable that he has not seen her in a while. And, and she is a welcome vision, a welcome thing to be seen. Ophelia, on the other hand, is probably scared stiff, right? She knows everything is being overheard by her father and the king. She's about to come face to face with boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, whatever you want to call it. And she knows that what she's going to say is going to make Hamlet upset. So when she speaks to Hamlet, her demeanor is probably very awkward and stiff. And, and that is why Hamlet so quickly picks up on the fact of what Ophelia is really doing. It takes him a few lines, but not long. And I think his first sign that kind of trouble is brewing is when she gives him back the letters that he has sent her and says, take these again for to the noble mind, rich gifts wax poor when givers prove unkind. And I think this probably puzzles Hamlet. It, it makes, it hurts him. And then he is immediately suspicious and it quickly turns to anger. In line 113, he says, huh, are you honest? Are you fair? Questioning him, are you, are you being truthful? Is, is this real? And this quickly turns to anger as he realizes Ophelia is a plant. She's betrayed him by posing as the wronged sweetheart. And once she directly lies to him, line 142, when he asks her directly, where's your father? And she says, at home, my lord. Well, that really enrages him. And so his, his anger is coming from a number of places, but towards Ophelia, it is this sense of deep betrayal. You have joined the other side and you are, you are against me now. And it is important, though, that, you know, this whole scene has been engineered. So a lot of what Hamlet says is also engineered. Now, if his emotions are not right, his emotions are genuine. He's angry. He's frustrated. But so much of what he actually says is done for show. The difficulty for us lies in interpreting each thing he says and deducing or guessing to whom it's directed. You know, when we see this on stage, most directors make it pretty clear. Um, they, they, they may have him turn towards where Claudius and Polonius are hidden and say certain lines. Um, much of, so much, much of what he says to Ophelia could actually be directed to the spies. For example, line 155, he says, God hath given you one face and you make yourselves another. Now he's talking about women, but could, he not, could that not be applied to Claudius and Polonius? Could apply to anyone really, right? And then he says, it hath made me mad. I say we will have no more marriage. 
clearly, I feel that is for the spies. They want to know that Hamlet is mad, and so Hamlet is, you know, obliging them by saying it word for word. There are some words I think he says that are directed at Polonius when he asks Ophelia where her father is. She says at home, and he says, let the doors be shut upon him that he may play the fool nowhere but in his own house. So even when Polonius is not supposed to be there, Hamlet feels comfortable having a dig at him. There's one line that I know is very specifically directed at the king. At the end, line 160, he says, those that are married already, all but one shall live. That's certainly a threat towards the king, okay, um, that I'm going to kill you. Part of the first half of the speech, of course, is him railing about himself and saying, look, I'm not good enough for you. Okay, get, get thee to a nunnery, leave, and, and, and I. why would you be a breeder of sinners? Why would you want to be with someone like me? But then it changes into a rant against kind of women in general. Um, and again, this is kind of more fuel for, for the Hamlet hates women um, crowd. And the, there's some pretty compelling evidence, I would have to say. First of all, he says, get thee to a nunnery how many times? I don't know, four or five times, right? Well, nunnery is a place where nuns live. In other words, on the, on the surface, he's saying to, to Ophelia, you should enter a convent, you should become a nun, therefore, of course, not ever getting married, right? That's, that's the, on the surface. But underneath, nunnery was also used kind of as an ironic term, mockingly, right, as a, for a brothel, a place where people would pay to have sex with prostitutes. So you can see then that what Hamlet is set, says is tinged with with irony. So on one side, or ambiguity, I should say, on one side, he's telling Ophelia, protect yourself. On another hand, he's saying to her, you may, you may as well be a prostitute. And what does he mean? Which one does he mean? Well, it's not entirely clear. The other thing that he says, I think, is certainly directed at women in general, is that he says, wise men, line 150, wise men know well enough what monsters you make of them. So that's kind of his his general rant against against women. At least that's how I feel. But look, you can you can interpret so much what Hamlet says, and you could go back and honestly, you could go back and reread it and look at it through the lens of, oh, he's talking to Polonius. Go back and reread it and think, oh, he's talking to um, Claudius. Go back and reread it and, oh, he's talking about Gertrude. That's even a possibility. So so much of this is in the eye of the beholder. So much of this is in what the director chooses to do. Um, when you watch the David Tennant version, it, it, I think it's very clear when he is putting it on in terms of, of saying things to the spies. But there are other times when he is really furious with Ophelia. And remember, again, it comes down to this betrayal that he feels. Ophelia's response is despairing. And it's very significant because it is the one time we really get access to her feelings. When, when Hamlet leaves, Ophelia is on her own on stage. Now, she knows she's being um, watched, but she says out loud, she think, clearly thinks that Hamlet is mad, right? Line 164, oh, what a noble mind is here overthrown. Line 173, um, that unmatched form and stature of blown youth blasted with ecstasy. 
And then she says, oh, woe is me to have seen what I've seen, see what I see. So we get a sense finally of what Ophelia really feels. She's on her own and she is absolutely distraught and traumatized. I do sometimes wonder, and please don't necessarily take this as gospel, I do wonder whether that part she is pretending, at least in terms of Hamlet's madness. Um, I, I, I just wonder sometimes whether she sees through Hamlet as well. I and mean, if she knows Hamlet as well as he as she claims, then she must see that something's up. I don't know. That's just my feeling. You take that for what it is. Either way, though, it does show that she's been cast aside, not just by Hamlet, but by Polonius, too. When Polonius comes out, he's talking to the king, and then he kind of turns to Ophelia and says, oh, line 192, he says, oh, how now, Ophelia? You need not tell us what Lord Hamlet said. We heard it all. I mean, totally unfeeling. You know, he's not, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that was traumatic for you. You know, we needed to do this. Nope. Just, oh, yeah, we heard everything. You don't need to tell us. It's, it's really unfeeling and a, a total lack of concern for Ophelia's well-being, which is kind of what we've seen all along. So there's our get thee to a nunnery scene. It's very intense. It's distressing. It's traumatic. And um, it certainly puts Ophelia's life onto a trajectory that is going to be very different now. Okay, we are back from commercial. Well, no, we're back from the podcast and we have been counting down our top five snacks. And so we are at number one, our favorite snack, savory or sweet. Number one. Why do I always have to go first? Okay, Just okay, fine. Just go. <laughs> um, uh, Mine is the veggie chips from Trader Joe's. It's kind of like addictive because like you can just like can eat, eat one, bag. but then you can yep. just like eat the whole bag and like. She eats the whole bag like every day. No, oh, that's doesn't. that's why Anyways, it's my so, favorite. Solid choice. I yeah. like it. Um, number one for me, gummy worms. Oh my! Any oh my gummies? Gosh. Sour oh. patch. Sour patch is good, but just gummies in oh. general. Whenever we go to Halloween, I always have to bring him back. Like. He always tastes all my sour patch. All right. So you're number one. One time in Seattle, I went across on a ferry and went and got ice cream, and I had my best experience ever, and it was my Moose Tracks malt, and it was delicious. And it was also about as big as your head. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Number one. Okay. Mine is home baked sweet potato fries <laughs> with homemade seasoning. Uh. Cut them baking grease. That I will allow is excellent. Yeah, it's pretty good. That's pretty good. All right, so that was our top five snack countdown. Um, if you guys have any ideas, let me know for top fives. Maybe tell me your top five snacks. Yeet! Well, our final section is looking at yet another plan that is being concocted. A plan still that is not open, a plan that not everyone is party to, and that is Claudius's plan um, to send Hamlet to England. Ostensibly as an emissary to collect taxes, it, it, may not, it may surprise you to know that actually England was actually under the rule of the Danes, people from Denmark, um, for quite considerable time during the 10th century. So 
not unheard of for that to happen. Might have rankled with some people in the 16th century audience, but nonetheless. Um, what is interesting, again, is you know, what is Claudius really thinking here? Obviously, now it is the perfect excuse for Claudius to get rid of Hamlet, right? He must have assumed that he would have to do so at some point. And so, or is it that, I mean, that's probably part of it, right? I also think that Ham, Claudius now really understands that, and whether he saw through what Hamlet was doing, whether he has seen something that, that, that Polonius has not. But he clearly thinks that this is not to do with unrequited love. He thinks there's something else. He says there's something in his soul, right? And he goes on to say that will be some danger. Well, of course, the danger is going to be to him, right? Not just not to anyone else. So I think Claudius thinks Hamlet has kind of crossed a threshold that once he crossed that, he was going to act. And whether it was with the way he treated Ophelia, um, whether it was what he did, the depth of his emotion that he maybe hasn't seen before, whatever it is, he realizes it's time to act. And unlike Hamlet, he's going to act decisively. Um, Polonius, though, wants to kind of draw this out a little bit, and maybe it's because he wants his influence to be felt for longer. He suggests that Gertrude might be able to get more out of Hamlet, and that, of course, naturally, he intends to spy on that conversation as well. He says, line 198, I'll be placed in the ear of all their conference. So it is, um, we have two things going on, right? One is Claudius's plan, the other is Polonius's plan, and essentially, Claudius says, fine, we'll do that, and if that doesn't work, then we will send him to England. And there is this rather sinister rhyming couplet to end the scene. He says, it shall be so. Madness in great ones must not unwatched go. And, of course, you've got this idea of unwatched, got more surveillance. And we leave Act 3, Scene 2, kind of a little breathless, but with this sense that, all right, Claudius is now going to act, and Hamlet's time is perhaps borrowed. And now every interaction between Hamlet and Claudius now is, is doubly tense, okay? Thanks again for joining me on this look at a pivotal, emotionally draining scene, Act 3, Scene 1. In the final thoughts and connections, there are so many things I want to get to, but in the interest of time, there's just a few I, I will touch on. The first thing that really struck me and, and I keep coming back to is Polonius's comment about devotion's visage and how we use it to sugar over the devil himself. How many of us, and I think about myself as well, how many of us have these um, character flaws or things that we've done that we don't want people to find out about? And instead of just pretending that they're not there, instead of just deflecting or, or trying to kind of distract others, what we do is we, we, we add this kind of fancy gloss so that when people do look, they see something even more than just the normal person, which is even more than the, the flawed human underneath. And that our desire as humans is to add gloss and make ourselves not just seem not bad, but even better than we really are. 
What also comes to me is Hamlet's soliloquy and that phrase to die to sleep and sleep perchance to dream. And what strikes me, and he talked, it's very similar to his feelings in Act One, Scene Three, with this oh, that oh, Act One, Scene Two, right? How stale, unprofitable, and weary are all the uses of this world. There's this overwhelming sense of exhaustion, and I see this in in people that I know and myself. And you know, when you talk to people who's really who are really struggling, and maybe you have experienced this yourself, what people want is they just they want rest, they want their brains to be kind of switched off. It's not necessarily this this desire to die and be gone, but they want an end to pain. They want to, they want oblivion. They want to stop feeling, and I think Hamlet reminds us that of that really powerful feeling, but that also that sleep and dreams, despite being a wonderful escape, provide actually no guarantee that they are better than the lives over which we do at least have a little bit of control. Hamlet's actions towards Ophelia are another example. Is another example to add to the litany that we already have of people's poor judgment hurting others who are more vulnerable, and in this case, Ophelia is the one who suffers the most.、Uh, someone asked me recently, you know, has Hamlet stopped loving Ophelia? Did he ever stop loving Ophelia? And I wonder about that. I mean, he says, "I loved you not," but of course, based on his letters and the things that we hear about him and what Ophelia says, this can't be true. He he surely loved her at some point. Maybe he still loves her. It makes me think a little bit. You know, when do we actually stop loving people? And, and and when we do, does that make all the things that we said, did, and wrote lose their beauty? Does it make them kind of completely ineligible now? You know, Hamlet later on in the play, in Act Five, Scene One, he will say, in this moment of deep emotion and angst, "I loved Ophelia," and this. The tragedy, of course, in this interaction in Act Three, Scene One, is that neither Hamlet nor、um, Ophelia get the opportunity to really express, on their own, without other people around them, how they really feel about each other. The last thing I wanted to look at is the sense of the power of guilt. The power of guilt. What it can do to people.、Um, We,、uh, you'll remember, of course, in a doll's house, and Nora just suffers and suffers because of the guilt that she feels because she's misleading her husband,、um, because she doesn't feel like a, a real person in this doll's house, in this life that where she is a doll.、Um, and coming clean with her husband is is both the wonderful and the terrible. Right, it's it's she's terrified of it, even though she knows that coming clean would, would would make things better, and Claudius is dealing with this, and he will deal with this even more and even more starkly and memorably in Act Three, Scene Three. Can't wait to get to it. But it is even more powerful, of course, because Nora is a is a protagonist. We we are rooting for her. We we want her to discover. You know, some peace. Claudius is an antagonist. We have no real feeling for him. But that aside, when he talks about his heavy burden, is a very powerful moment. There aren't that many antagonists who 
try to come to terms with their actions. And most of the time, I think that's because in stories, it's much more convenient and, and easy to have just a bad antagonist, right? It makes the conflict of good versus evil more easily defined. You know, as much as I, I love and obsessed and, uh, and, obs- and am obsessed almost with the Harry Potter stories, Voldemort is pretty much pure evil. And when we look back at his story and can point to places when he... Um, you know, was affected by other people. But there's never really a case where he struggles with whether good or evil is is the right or the wrong thing to do. In fact, at the very end, right, Voldemort is given the, the chance to, for remorse, but he feels none. Uh, Roger in Lord of the Flies embraces evil and the opportunity to participate in it. You know, there's nothing redeeming, for example, in, in Othello about Iago's character or even his motivations. Bertie, Fahrenheit 451, we're given no insight into his backstory, so we can't really sympathize with him when Montag burns him alive. Complex villains are hard to come by. And stories that have a moral gray area, where the protagonist, the antagonist meet, they touch, make us think more deeply about these moral issues. And just as we appreciate the hero who is imperfect, it's the villain with just a little bit of humanity that becomes a more nuanced and complex character and gives the story more depth. In that sense, everyone in Hamlet is part villain and part victim. And that's yet another reason why the play is so compelling. Thanks for listening. See you next time.